Andrew Ferguson is the son of a school teacher and a small business owner and county commissioner from Gwinnett County. After graduating from the University of Georgia with degrees in business, in public and international affairs, he currently resides in Athens where he works as a screenwriter. With experience in the campaigns of Chalice Montgomery, Stacey Abrams, and Elizabeth Warren, Ferguson launched his campaign for Georgia's 10th congressional district earlier this year. That's it. I, I, I think that's fantastic. All right. Excellent. All right. So uh, to the best of my ability, everything sounds um, as good as we can get it, uh, given the circumstances. So um, okay. I'm just going to do a quick you know, welcome you in, and then we'll get right to the first question. Sounds good. And one note, I do have a dog. And when I tend to do these interviews and Zooms, occasionally he will bark. So you may hear that in the background just for your own information. All right. And if you happen to get like a package to the door and the dog um, does as my dog does to alert everyone in the household <laughs> that that's happening, uh, we may have to stop and, and start over. But, you know, I think there, that there should uh... be no packages today. Um, I'll, I have some treats here that I can toss him really quick if he, you know, barks more than like two or three times. Well, I want to think, though, that our, our audience knows that um, everyone <laughs> who's conducting home, yeah. and everyone's engaging in the um is uh, living a different lifestyle right now and so exactly andrew ferguson thank you for joining me today on military matters thank you daniel for having me um it's a pleasure to be here well thank you again for uh, accepting the invitation uh, to start off i wanted to ask you just a, a question about yourself and, and how you got here uh, to be a candidate for georgia's 10th congressional district uh, who has inspired you to public service and once elected, what will you do to carry their spirit forward? So this is a very personal question for me in particular because my father was a Gwinnett County Commissioner in the 80s and early 90s. And so I grew up having one of my parents as a public official. And for those of you who may not know, Gwinnett County was not the Gwinnett County that you know today. Um, Gwinnett County was very much rural and did not have a whole lot of economic prospects back in like the, especially in the early eighties. Um, and so I was able to grow up, um, with a father who was working with several like-minded commissioners who wanted to bring economic prosperity and equality, good education, good schools, good parks, all of that stuff to an area that really had not seen that kind of leadership prior. And so for me personally, my father is, is my main inspiration because I've seen what happens when you do have someone who runs for public office and they do put um, working families first. I've seen that Gwinnett, just to jump forward a good you know, 20, 25 years, is one of the most diverse counties in the state. It's one of the best counties for small business owners and in particular minority small business owners. And so all that foundation was laid back in the 80s and the 90s. It didn't just happen overnight. And so for me in particular, uh, my father was the inspiration. And to answer the second part of the question, to live up to that is just to continue to put working families first, to put education and small business owners and local economies first over you know, big corporations who might try to have uh, more access to me and say, well, we can donate $100,000 to your pack. You know, I'm not interested in any of that stuff, just like my father wasn't interested in any of that stuff. 
we're about working families and small businesses and making local economies work. Now, what is the first bill you plan on introducing once you're elected to Congress? Someone may beat me to it, but a new Voting Rights Act would be the first bill um, because it was introduced in the House um, with this um, 2018 House session. It did not pass in the Senate, obviously. Um, So that would be a new Voting Rights Act, which included um, Election Day as a national holiday, expanded voting rights, um, Sunday voting, early voting on Sundays, um, and just all manner of expanding voting rights to make sure that this is an actual democracy and that it's not some sort of narrowly tailored um, democracy that – Republicans are in control of. And so that would be the first bill because I, I believe everyone has the right to vote. And that's what our democracy is is based on. And as we saw in 2018 with our gubernatorial election, um, there were extremely troubling things that happened during that election. And, and that kind of stuff should never happen. It shouldn't happen at the local level. It shouldn't happen at the state level. It shouldn't happen at the federal level. So a new Voting Rights Act would be the first piece of legislation that I would propose as a member of Congress. And, of course, you are running for the Democratic nomination for the 10th U.S. Congressional District, um, which means once you're elected, you will be uh, working with the state's Republican leadership uh, to make change uh, or to continue progress in the state of Georgia. How will you work with Georgia's Republican leadership to improve health care in rural parts of the state? And so this, again, will go back to my personal reason for running. My father was a Republican. Um, My mom and stepdad are Republicans. My sister is an independent. She was a Republican up until 2016 when she voted for Hillary Clinton. And then in 2018, she voted for Stacey Abrams. So I've grown up with Republicans my whole life. And so I know how to talk to them. I know how to build bridges with Republicans. And so that's one of the reasons I'm excited to run for this particular seat, because it is a gerrymandered district. Cook Political rates it as a plus 15 Republican district. But like Barack Obama always said, there is far more that unites us than divides us. And coming from a family of mostly Republicans, and I have a wonderful relationship with my entire family. Uh, my father has you know, passed away back in 2012, but – My mom, my stepdad, my sister, I have wonderful relationships with all of them, and they support what I'm doing, what we're running on. To get to the second part of the question in terms of health care, we, first of all, need our Republican counterparts to back away from the court case that is still, for, for many of of you, you may think like somehow this went away, but they are still in court. The Trump administration and Republicans are still in court trying to do away with the Affordable Care Act. Um, So the first measure of business would be to hopefully get them to withdraw that. And by the time I'm in Congress, that will probably have already been decided. If it somehow is not decided, that would be my first measure is get them to stop fighting against the Affordable Care Act, because I think this crisis in particular has laid bare 
just how much this country needs a universal health care system. And we can argue over the details of how we get there, but I don't think at this point we can argue over the fact that we need a universal health care system. And so I, I would use um, what we're going through right now in terms of my Republican colleagues to, you know, make the case that, you know, we may have ideological differences about how we get there, but I think we all agree at this point everyone needs access to affordable health care in this country, and there's no reason being one of the richest countries in the world that we can't get there. On your website, uh, your platform lists that you are in favor of Medicare for all, which I think we'd gather from your response. Um, are there ways that you think you could help craft a compromise that would perhaps even do things like get the state of Georgia to accept the expansion of Medicare or move in the direction you would like to see it go towards a universal health care system? Are there any talking points or shall we, I hate to use this um, uh, metaphor, but bargaining chips that you would use to try to uh, bring your Republican counterparts uh, to your way of thinking on uh, this, I would hate to, I hate to say it, but bitterly partisan issue. There's two points. One, obviously, Medicare is a state issue, and so I would want what Georgia can't wait, and that's the movement that we've founded with our congressional campaign. It's called Georgia Can't Wait. What we've been trying to do is partner with candidates at the local levels so that we can take back the state legislature, at least the House. And we have um, in Athens and then um, in Baldwin County, there's particularly a candidate, Quentin T. Howell, who's a very good friend of mine, um, that we are supporting. We are trying to help to make sure that we flip the state house so that we can put the maximum pressure we can in order to enact um, Medicaid expansion. And so that would be number one. Number two, in terms of bargaining chips, if Republicans are saying that we absolutely cannot eliminate private insurance – the step I would say in the in the short term is that we come up with a public option. And by having a public option, we allow people the choice of continuing to have their private insurance. But we also come up with a government plan that eventually will prove to be better than their private insurance. And I know that change is, you know, very scary for a lot of people, especially when it comes to your health care. And so that would might, in terms of you asking about a specific bargaining chip, that would be a bargaining chip where if we're saying Medicare for all is the complete elimination of private insurance, maybe the, the step we need to make next is a public option, which keeps private insurance, but also brings on a public option as well to make sure that people, you know, still have a choice. And then in the long term, that choice is going to become clearer and clearer that the government option is the best option for you and your family. How can Congress work to improve educational outcomes for all students and narrow the gap between the country's richest and poorest school districts? So first, what we need is universal broadband. 
um, universal Wi-Fi, and this crisis has accentuated and laid bare um, the difference between the communities that have access to that and the communities that not that don't. Um, I come from a family of educators. My mom taught first grade for 31 years. My sister is currently a elementary school counselor at a Title I school. My brother is a social studies teacher at Give, an alternative school in Lawrenceville. And they, I talk to them multiple times a week, and they're like, even in Gwinnett County, where both my brother and sister live, they're like, we have families that don't have access, regular, consistent access to the internet. So in terms of District 10, you can only imagine what that internet access is like. So number one, we need to make sure everyone has consistent, reliable internet access. That is how we're gonna level the playing field and to make sure every child and in terms of adult education, because I think that's something that goes unsaid a lot of times, make sure both our children and in terms of adult education have access to education outside of the classroom, because we're seeing more and more that's what has an impact on communities. And so that would be number one. Number two, we need more federal funding for our local schools. And if there's an issue of whether this is something that falls particularly under the purview of the federal government or not, one thing we can absolutely do is to make sure that we have free breakfast and lunch for every public school student in the country. And that's one of the things from the very beginning of our campaign that we've been running on. Public schools go through more food on Monday than any other day of the week. And so what does that tell you? It tells you that come the weekend, a lot of our children, especially in rural areas, are not getting the adequate nutrition that they need. So they show up Monday morning starved. And that is no way, first of all, that's no way to live. It's no way to learn either. And that's absolutely a, a program the federal government can have. And we have the money to do it. It's just having an advocate at the federal level who will press for that. And as, as the, the congressperson for District 10, I make a vow that I will put that as one of my top priorities. I think I've answered the question. Daniel, if I haven't, remind me of the part that I haven't answered. Oh, no, you've, you've gotten it. You actually uh, answered in two different ways. Um, so okay. I think that was good. Okay. I do want to ask just a follow-up question. Uh, when you talk about expanding broadband access, does that include just expanding the network? Or is there a um, hardware component that needs to be addressed as well? I, I think it's, it's probably both. I've been... So, so we know companies like Comcast or Spectrum, they make millions, if not billions in profits. So they have the capability to where we, we don't just need to expand the network or we actually need to expand the infrastructure. They have the capability to do it. Again, the federal government just needs to, whether you want to see it as putting pressure on them or forming a partnership which I'm much more a fan of forming a partnership with them and say, look, this is, A, it's the right thing to do. B, it's the right right thing for everyone long-term. That That's where I'm at. And I've been delivering school lunches for the Clark County School District for the last six weeks. 
It started out um, Monday through Friday. Now we've progressed to where we're delivering lunches on Mondays and Thursdays. Part of what we're doing, in addition to delivering uh, meals, both breakfast and lunch, we're making sure that everyone has internet access. And to the families that don't have internet access, we're connecting them with, in this case for Athens, Comcast. Because Comcast has been generous and said, we're gonna let you, we're gonna grant you internet access for the next 90 days. And that was at the beginning of this crisis and I feel like the longer this crisis goes, they will extend that. But a lot, a lot of these families either A, don't know that that exists, or B, don't have, to your point, the technical capabilities to connect with that. They might not have a computer. They might not have a laptop. They might not have a smartphone that can connect. And so we need to make sure we're bridging that gap as well. And I think the federal government absolutely has a role to play. And you know the breadth of the uh, coronavirus pandemic has reached into so many different aspects of our lives that uh, this next question may uh, to an extent be redundant uh, but i'll ask it anyways uh, to give you another opportunity to identify a different part uh, of why you're running Um, but can you identify a gap in the social fabric that the coronavirus has exposed and how you would use your seat in the U.S. House of Representatives to attempt to fix that. So not to, to your point, be redundant about healthcare and education. There are two other areas that I would like to speak to. One is affordable housing. And so right now we have no mechanism at the federal level to say, we're going to get with your mortgage lender. We're going to get with your renter and say, for the next three months, we're going to push all those payments to the back end of your lease or your mortgage because affordable housing along with do you have enough food are are two of the main priorities right now for everyone and especially people here in the 10th district it's unconscionable to think that you could be prohibited from going to your job and working but at the same time your renter or your mortgage could say you still owe the $1,200 you owe for this month. There's just a disconnect there. So that would be number one, affordable housing. Um, Number two is our criminal justice system. And we've seen time and time again how, first of all, this COVID-19 crisis is disproportionately affecting the black community. I believe it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 80% of the COVID-19 cases in Georgia come from the black community. And so we've got a criminal justice issue where we already have a system, even 50 years after the civil rights movement that is still disproportionately affecting the black community. And we don't have we never solved that problem and so now we're we're dealt with another problem in the fact that we've got people imprisoned that do not have access to health care and it seems like no one is fighting for their rights and so i would say our criminal justice system has to be you know entirely revisited we would i would have said this before but we've got a system that 
obviously affects one portion of our community disproportionately, and now we've got a health crisis that affects that same portion of our community disproportionately, and no one seems to be standing up for them. And so I think we have to take a look at the um, entire for-profit prison system that we have and say this is not right. This is a racist system, and it needs to be fixed. It needs to be fixed now. Have Congress's efforts to stabilize the country in the face of the coronavirus worked? And is there anything that you would do differently? My short answer is no, that they have not. Um, In particular, I want to talk about the small business loans because we've seen overwhelmingly that those loans have gone to affluent white areas with small business owners who are white and have connections with banks that are in primarily urban areas. And so if you're looking at, you know, District 10, for instance, you've got a lot of areas that are rural, but you still have the same number of small business owners. And and they did everything they were supposed to do. They went to their bank. They filed all the proper paperwork. And over – it's close to 90% of them did not get a small business loan, this Paycheck Protection Program loan that could bridge the gap until this crisis is over. And so what we saw time and time again was either affluent white businesses or big big businesses. You know, Ruth, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse comes to mind. I know they eventually returned the loan that they got, but they got two $20 million loans. To me, a company that is making, you know, thirty, forty million dollars in profit is not the company to be, you know, bailing out or looking out for right now. To me, it's all of these small businesses like we have in District 10 that are the heart of our communities, that are the backbone of the economies. Those are the the people that we should be looking out for. And I'm hopeful that with this next, I believe it's the CARES 2 bill that they're proposing now or going to be proposing in the House, that they have finally figured out that, that the way that they have structured things is not working and that they need to make sure that everyone has equal access to these loans and to this money because that's the only way our local economies are going to get through is if it's a fair process. And right now it has not been a fair process. And so in that respect, I feel like Congress has failed to answer your question. And I feel this next question may be a little bit difficult given the circumstances. Uh, But as you've talked to the people who live in the 10th district, what is one story that you'll take with you to Washington and how will you act upon it? So yesterday, as a matter of fact, I talked to someone who would, is a would-be constituent who is a educator, lifelong educator, um, and they have a son. And the son is in, I think, their late 20s and did not have health insurance. And the son has contracted 
this COVID-19 and because of, in part because of the fact that they did not have health insurance, it was caught late. Um, and there's a very strong possibility that there's going to be amputations involved. And to me, that is one of the stories that sticks with me is that to circle back around, we need a universal healthcare system. We don't need people that are afraid to go to the doctor and that are afraid to go to the doctor, especially during a pandemic, a public health crisis that no one has seen in close to a century. And so I want to fight for a system where people are not afraid to go to the doctor because they're afraid of what the bill is going to be. I don't think anyone should be deathly sick and, and say to themselves, I can't go to the doctor because I can't pay for the bill. That's just not the United States of America that I believe in. I think our country is better than that. And so that's, you know, the one story that will stick with me is, is that that should never, ever, ever be the case. Public health crisis or not, no one should ever be afraid to go to the doctor because of their fear of what the bill might be. And I've come to my final question, and that's just the question. Why should members of our radio audience vote for you? So, first of all, before this public health crisis, October back through, I guess, up until March, we traveled as many counties as we could get to in the district, which was 17. We were very well received. We have support in 17 of those 25 counties since March, we have been calling all of those 17 counties plus the other eight counties. We have support from all 25 counties in the district. We've made every effort that we can think of to connect with people in all 25 counties, to hear from people in all 25 counties, to say, what is going on in your community? What is the thing that is most on your mind? So we've done the work of traveling to all these communities, to all these counties. Um, and I think that shows not just in our platform, but how we continue to go about trying to represent people and trying to reach out to people. And, and our campaign has kind of pivoted to trying to be a resource for people. If you need to figure out how to submit an application for unemployment we've tried to be there and and say this is how you do it if you've needed to figure out how do i absentee vote because i've never done this before we've pivoted to figure out all right here's how you do it we've been posting videos we've been updating our facebook page we've tried to be a resource to everyone in district 10 um, that is going through what is just an extremely hard time. We've tried to do the job that Jody Heiss has not been doing. And so I would say that would be number one is that we are on your side. We're on the side of working families. We're on the side of being a resource. And we've, we've done everything that we can think of to be a resource. And 
if you have any issues, by all means, reach out. Um, GeorgiaCan'tWait.com on the internet. Georgia Can't Wait on Facebook. If you message us with anything, any kind of concern, any kind of issue you have, we will respond that day to you. Um, and so broadly, that that is why we think come June 9th, we would really appreciate your vote because we feel like we're best positioned to go against Jody Heiss and truly fight for the people of District 10 and fight for all the working families um, here in District 10. Andrew Ferguson, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on Millage Matters. Thank you, Daniel, so much for having us. Um, it was a tremendous pleasure, and I, I just really appreciate it.